Hi everybody, my name is Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't you love Brian? Can we just thank Brian? Not going to mention names, but somebody turned 50 recently. Wow, amazing. He wears it well, right? Nice. Awesome. Hey, I'm probably going to forget this, so I'm going to say it right now. Some of your application is to come back at 5 o'clock tonight in room 20 for healing prayer. Because what we're going to talk about is so impossible, nothing short of a miracle will take this out of your life, will root this out of your life. And so you see it in your message notes, uh, 5 o'clock across the room, healing prayer. I can see room 20 right here. It's the other building, uh, that room, okay? I just came from our Haas community, uh, PCC Hudson. It's uh, doing very well down there. It's amazing. But at Haas, coming Monday, it's back to school day. Uh, in the Gadini house, two of my daughters are in school, and then my youngest, Jojo, goes to Clifford School uh, tomorrow. And as I think of back to school, I think of someone named Ruby Bridges. Does that name ring a bell? It should with all of us. Uh, Ruby was six years old in 1960 when she became the first African-American to integrate into an all-white school. The country had had this law in the books that schools were to be integrated. Schools weren't doing it. And in 1960, uh, they pushed it and and this happened. Norman Rockwell actually depicted her going back to school in this um, sad painting called The Problem We All Live With. Very famous painting. Here's the backstory. The NAACP had selected originally 140 kids to integrate into the New Orleans school system, uh, but only six of them, all girls, by the way, were able to pass the admissions test, which, and this is a whole different sermon, was slanted towards or against African Americans so they wouldn't test in. That's a whole different story. And only Ruby of the six went to William France Elementary School. All the others dropped out. So on that first day of school, I don't know what your ritual is. We have one in the Gadini house and uh, with Jojo, and it, you know, it's a paper, it's a picture, it's this and that. Ruby's first day of school that year was four U.S. Marshals showing up at her doorstep. In, in a good way, these were kind individuals to protect her and to take her and her mom to school. She writes about this, and she mentions driving their car through the protesters in her little six-year-old mind. She thought it was a parade, and she was the queen. But then she opened the door and that illusion shattered. She says, when I opened the door, she heard chants. She saw someone, this is actually on the internet, this picture, carrying a casket with a black doll in it. She uh, was spit upon and her life was threatened. The other students, all 500 of them, were pulled from school that day by their parents. And her first day of school was in the principal's office all by herself. The next day, a teacher came forward from Boston who taught Ruby the whole first year all by herself. At night, Ruby would have nightmares, and she'd wake her mom up, and her mom would ask her, have you prayed, Ruby? Her mom was a Christ-following woman, so was her dad. Ruby writes in a book entitled Through My Eyes. I pulled the quote out. She said this, somehow it always worked. Kneeling at the side of my bed and talking to the Lord, that made everything okay. My mother and my pastor said, you have to pray for your enemies. So that's what I did. 
Now, a man entered her life that first week of school. He was a psychologist, would go on to be a world-renowned psychologist, Harvard professor, prolific author. That man's still alive. His name's Dr. Robert Coles. And Dr. Robert Coles volunteered his time to meet with Ruby and to make sure she was doing okay internally through this trauma. And Ruby, uh, one day, was walking into school, and Dr. Coles knew about this. She stopped at the protesters and talked, seemingly talked to them, and then turned and walked into school. And Dr. Coles was talking to her, and he said, what'd you say to them, Ruby? And Ruby said, oh, I wasn't talking at them. I was praying for them. Ruby was told by her mom, who had to go back to work, so now she's by herself, and you're in, when you're in the car, pray for them, Ruby. And she forgot to pray that day, so she stopped, turned to them, and prayed for them audibly. Dr. Cole said, what did you pray? And this is what she said. I prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Dr. Coles, who would later write about this, and now this is where I'm getting this material from, he noted two things that just blew his mind, and he's a world-renowned psychologist. The first thing was how Ruby's illiterate parents passed on faith and biblical values to their daughter. The second thing was as he was continuing trying to figure out how Ruby could be so healthy, he finally pinpointed the trait, forgiveness the amazing power of forgiveness in this little six-year-old. Now, forgiveness is what I call and what I would call an Etsy value. Uh, in the first service, where the median age is a little bit higher, I had to call this illustration a hallmark value. <laughs> but for here, it's an Etsy value. It looks good stenciled on reclaimed wood in walls, but when it gets personal, when the varnish rubs off, it's no longer cute. I mean, come on, our neighbors, I love our neighbors, they have this on their front porch. Who doesn't want that to be part of our lives? Who doesn't want to say, we do forgiveness? But you put that person that you're holding, that's stolen something from you, that's hurt you, and now as I'm talking about this area of forgiveness, and the hurt is real, I'm not discounting that, the pain is real, what they stole from you hurt, and for me to say, do you do forgiveness against them? Now you're pushing back a little bit. Because I push back innately. Now you're saying, no, you don't know my story. Jesus, yeah, okay, I could forgive people except them. And I would just ask, and I'm going to pause, whose name comes to mind that you can hold during this message, hold it loosely, as uh, the object needing forgiveness, as the person needing forgiveness, as the one that God wants you to forgive. You want to rub the tarnish or the, the stencil off the reclaimed wood and make it real personal. I'll give you just 10 seconds to think of their name. You probably don't need that much time. <laughs> would we not all agree that the greatest human stories ever told, that in the theaters, live or on screen, the things that cause us to cry are stories around this topic? How many of you know the name um, Corey Ten Boom, right? A woman who was put in a, a Christian in a concentration camp and then had to forgive, came face to face with her Nazi perpetrators and had to forgive them. How many of you know the story of Nelson Mandela, unjustly jailed for decades and then he had to forgive them? How many know the stories of Rwanda and the Tutsis? who had to forgive the Hutus, and the only reason that country really is as resilient as it's become since the atrocity of what took place is because of forgiveness. 
How many know the story of the God-man named Jesus who came to earth and called out to us, you have stolen from me, each one of you, and I've come with a message. I didn't come to judge you. I came to forgive you. These are the greatest stories ever told, and now Jesus is saying to each one of us, I want you to be that story. I want you to make it personal. And so let's talk straight up about forgiveness. Your Bibles are open, Matthew 18. Let's dive in. Let's get a context. Verse 21, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter, so Brian already talked about this. This is a private parable, okay? This isn't a public parable like if you were here last week. That was a public parable. This is just for the apprentices or people who identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. If that's you and you identify as a follower of Christ, this is Jesus' message to you. If you don't identify as a follower of Christ, I'm, I'm actually glad you're here. Thanks for taking the risk. Uh, this is what Jesus is calling you into. This is the life of the apprentices. And we haven't lived this, and I know you don't see it very much, but you get to know some of the people in this room, and they are the all-stars, in my opinion, in God's hall of faith who've lived this out. So Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now, Peter grew up in the synagogue in the first century, so did Jesus. He knew what the rabbis taught. They put a limit on forgiveness. Did you know this? The the rabbis said, you can forgive up to three times. And then if it happens a fourth time, let it go. You choose bitterness, you choose unforgiveness, you choose resentment, okay? They put a boundary on it. So Peter is thinking, wow, I'm, I'm better than that. I'll double the number. I'll add one for good measure. Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I'll tell you the truth. Not seven times. I'm going to raise you 10x. And then I'm going to add seven to it. 77 times. Now, don't miss this. Peter, he's saying, for apprentices of mine, there's, you ready? If you identify as a follower of Christ, if you don't, here's the power available to each one of you. There should be no boundaries on your forgiveness. Forgiveness is limitless, endless, and relentless when it comes to you and other people. And then he invites Peter into this fictitious world called a parable where he's going to turn him at just the right moment to look back at his unforgiving heart and see brand new applications. So let's jump into that world. Look at uh, the next verse, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, these aren't household servants. Uh, These are direct reports to the king. They are over governors. They oversee big regions of the king's land, countries maybe, states, whatever, provinces, whole countries. Okay, not household. The, The debt was too big. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, some of your versions say talents, was brought to him. Uh, What is a talent? A talent or a bag of gold is 20 years worth of day laborer wages. Now look, I know I do souls, I don't do math, and I know that so many of you are engineers, and you usually correct me when I try to do math, okay? Uh, but I've got some math for you, and I haven't been corrected yet. No one still had three services, no one's corrected me, so let me do the math for you. I just Googled this. The average day labor wage in San Mateo County is $150 a day. I multiplied that by six, let's give day laborers a day off. And then I multiplied that by 50, let's give them two weeks vacation. Then I multiplied that by 20, and then I multiplied that by 10,000. That came up to $9 billion in today's language. This is the debt 
that was accrued. And that was the whole point. Jesus is using hyperbole. It's an amount so large, it can never be paid back. So large, it could actually jeopardize the king's estate. Hold that for about 20 minutes. We'll get back to it. And the kingdom. This man, either through gross mismanagement or corruption, squandered a huge sum and accrued an enormous debt. And here's the issue, and this is why forgiveness is so hard. Do I have everyone's attention? He took what wasn't his to take. It wasn't his money in the first place. And I don't know about you, but that's the rub when it comes to me and forgiveness. Someone's taken something from me that wasn't theirs to take. And it just seems so unjust. And here's the deal, everybody. You can never get it back. We want to hold them accountable and we want to hold back forgiveness because we want them to pay back what they took. Can I let you in on a little secret? It'll never be paid back. Not because they're not willing to pay it back, but once it's taken, it can never go back. And you have to make a choice. I have to make a choice when it comes to forgiveness. Who's going to pay the debt from what was taken from me? Uh, If my walls could talk, and I don't do a lot of counseling, that's why we have uh, men and women, but men like Brian and Janet, they're amazing at counselors. But you would hear in my office, they stole my purity. They stole my dreams. They stole my future. It's always talking about in almost financial terms. They took something from me. And I'm just telling you, when that happens, and sin is all over the place, we've all been stolen from, uh, there's no easy out of that place. There's no easy. To forgive isn't easy, but as we're going to see here, to not forgive is even harder. Ultimately, you pay a bigger price in withholding forgiveness. So, verse 25, since he was not able to pay, I'm just going to pause and let that sit for a minute. Sorry. Holy Spirit is telling me to stop talking right now. I can't shepherd you individually right now over that pain, but you have a wonderful counselor who can. Let him minister to you. Verse 25, this man is delusional. That's what sin is, it's deceitful. Hebrews chapter three talks about that. Since he was not able to pay, his master ordered that he and his wife and his children all be sold to repay the debt. That's standard practice in the Roman Empire in the first century. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. You're gonna see parallel language between the two men needing forgiveness, this servant and the one after him. Be patient with me. He begged, I'll pay back everything. Now there's the delusional part. Nine billion dollars, really? The servant's master, knowing he's delusional, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What? There's a jaw-dropping part. I'm just gonna cut to the chase for the sake of time, and you know, Brian read it, uh, how the sermon ends. He's released in freedom. He's walking out, 
after being released from $9 billion worth of debt, and he comes across another servant, someone down the food chain, if you will, who owes him a minuscule amount, just a minuscule amount. Let's call it a week's wages. And it's parallel. That man falls on his knees. Take pity on me. Please forgive me. And he chokes him and says, you'll pay back every penny and throws him in prison. And word gets back to the king. And the point of the parables in verse 34 to 35, here it is. The master handed him over to the jailers. Here's the key word to be what? Tortured. There's the whole point. Withholding forgiveness is torture. The whole point of the sermon, of the parable. If you don't forgive, if you don't learn how to do it, it's like this insidious disease. I know it's not easy, but easy is off the table, friends. No choice is easy. So choose the good hard that brings you out in a good place as opposed to the bad hard, if I can use that term, that leaves you trapped in bitterness. Anne Lamott is an author in Marin, and she, uh, in one of her books, said this, and she took a phrase that's been well overused, but I like how she put it. In fact, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. That's Jesus' whole point. So the value for us in regard to forgiveness, how do I do that? I know you because you're probably like me. You'd give anything to live a free life. You'd give anything to have unbounded forgiveness that's limitless, that's relentless, that has no bounds. It's what God wants for you. It's what should mark the followers of Christ. How do we get there? Turn to page two. Let's look at what the king had and then what he did. Because if we could see what the king had, we can do what the king did. That's the whole point, okay? Let's look at that. What did the king have and what did he do? Are you there on page two? All right, here we go. What did the king have? Verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Here's the word. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. Patient. What does that word mean? Written in the original language when Jesus spoke it in a different language, it means to be long-tempered. Um, some of your versions actually capture it better with Long-suffering. Um, it means to bear an injury without having a meltdown. What's amazing about this king is things happen to him, but they don't destroy him. He's not controlled by what's done to him. So suffering happens without a choice. This is just the world we live in. People are going to sin against you. People are going to rip you off uh, emotionally, relationally, financially. It's going to happen. You don't have a choice in that. This isn't heaven. This is not a Disney cartoon. This is real life, okay? What we do have a choice over is what we do with that. And that's the point of that word patience. You think this is impossible? I would challenge you to consider six-year-old Ruby Bridges and her ability to walk through day after day a hostile crowd. Well, what does that look like, Gary? How is that fleshed out? I'm so glad you asked. Look at the bottom of page two and let's look quickly. What did the king do? The servant's master, verse 27, this is so simple, took but not easy, to quote my brother Brian Wren. Uh, this is simple, but it's not easy. He took pity on him, he canceled the debt, he let him go. There's the key, my friends. There's the key biblically to how to live free. So let's go through that a little slower. Took pity on him. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word pity. 
Actually, it seems like a wimpy word to me, but as I dove in, it's not wimpy at all. Do you know that word pity? Uh, some, of your word, some of your Bibles say compassion. Uh, it means to be moved with compassion towards someone else's misery. Uh, it's most often, it is the most often used character trait of Jesus in the Gospels. He is described by that word more than any other word in the scriptures. That takes it out of the wimpy category right there. Jesus was a man who had compassion. Track with me here, okay? I'll, I'll bring you into vaguely, because these are captured uh, and put on the podcast, but vaguely a, a forgiveness situation I've been wrestling with all year long. It, it has almost taken me under. And it's not something that even happened to me. I, I have plenty of those. But it's something that happened to someone I love uh, in my family, my extended family. And something happened to her that was just unthinkable. And it, 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 it almost took her out and it almost took uh, her brothers out too, my sister. It almost took us out. And it was hard to get to that word pity because of what was done, what I, my wife has heard this a million times this year. I would never do something like that. How can that man consider himself a man and do that? See, what am I doing? I am differentiating myself from him. Okay, instead of what the king did was just the opposite. A forgiving spirit, you're gonna push back, oh my gosh, makes a conscious choice to identify with the commonalities between you and the offender, not the differences. That's what the king did. That's what it means. And he says he was patient with him. In other words, what I do is dehumanize it's my innate response, and I, you know, I've been working with that, asking for God's grace in that. What the king did was find common ground. When I dehumanize, you know what I'm doing? I'm creating a caricature of an offender. Uh, you guys are, are, is anyone an artist in here? Does the word caricature mean something to you? Cartoonists, right? They find a trait that's different, and they, they blow it up. And make it, okay, just look at this picture. Here's a character. Okay. Mark Zuckerberg. Is that who he is? Absolutely not. Does Mark Zuckerberg have high cheekbones and a smaller chin? Absolutely. This cartoonist is making that in the extreme. LeBron James. Is that what he really looks like? Kinda. There's enough there, but he's got a bigger jaw. He's amazing, right? Just his, his physical structure. So they made a caricature, made it really big. That's what we do. It's the opposite of pity. We find the offense and we blow it out of proportion. And I'm not minimizing the offense. We blow that person out of proportion. We demonize them. We say they are, you know, all these words. And we make terrible caricatures of them. And Jesus would say to you and me, that actually hurts you more than it does them. We reduce them to what they've done to us. And Jesus would say, oh, I know it's hard, but that's like drinking rat poison, thinking the rat's gonna die. See, and we never apply the same standards to us, by the way, right? Uh, we are more multidimensional when we've been the one that's been wrong. We look to our intentions and our motives and we judge ourselves by that, but we judge others by their actions. 
Well, what do you do when you do this? Pray for them. That's what Jesus said. Look at this verse in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 28. I'm not saying this is easy or possible. We've already talked about this. Easy isn't an option. Nothing is easy at this point when it comes to forgiveness. Jesus said, start here. Love your enemies. How do I do that, Jesus? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, even internally. Choose not internally to curse back. And then start here, pray for those who mistreat you. I am telling you, walking with Jesus for 35 years, I am just telling you this works. I can't even describe how it works. And sometimes my prayers are this, God, I I can't even forgive. I don't even wanna forgive. So there's my heart, there's my mess. Take it from there. I'm willing to let you take me from there. I can't do it on myself. Over time, God takes you on a journey. It's not easy, but the journey ends in freedom. So I wanna take 10 seconds, 15, because you probably don't need to access this, uh, a hard time to access this. Who is it that needs you to pray for them? Who is it that you're holding and God's going, start with prayer, start with prayer. That's why I said some of our application is tonight at five o'clock in room 20, where you humbly come before gifted men and women who will pray over you, who are safe, and you say, my healing is an internal spiritual healing of forgiveness. Then look what he did, he canceled the debt. It's amazing to me that uh, most of us, myself included, when we looked at that amount, the talents, we weren't aghast by that. Uh, But then a story happened, I just learned about it this morning, this week, that may help you. Um, At NYU this week in medical school, there's a ceremony for first-year med students where they get, it's called a robing ceremony. Uh, My brother's a doctor, his daughter's a doctor, they talk about this, where the first year of school becomes official when they start school, and they're given a doctor's robe and um, their, their names on it, the white robe, you know what I'm talking about? Well, in NYU, just this week, three days ago, during the robing ceremony, the dean of the med school stood up and said to all the first-year med students, I have an announcement to make. All your tuition's been paid for. All of you, cancel your student loans. It's been paid for. Okay, uh, Think of your emotional response there. The other services were a little more responsive. (laughs) Suddenly I'm going, that was a terrible illustration. (laughs) Uh, That's what the king did to this servant. Nine billion dollars, he just said, bam, off the ledger. You're free. See, that's counterintuitive, right? What Jesus is saying is you cancel the debt. Don't take revenge. Don't make to look the offender pay for what they took from you. You pay it. You carry the debt. You pay it off yourself. Now, I want to quickly say, I am not talking about averting any legal or criminal protection, okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the internal need to take revenge. At the core of our unforgiveness is an anger over a debt that was stolen from you. And Jesus is saying, get rid of the ledger. Quit accessing it in your mind. Put it on my account and you go free. I'll take care of that debt. 
Uh, he said it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Anyone remember last week's message? For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I'll repay, says the Lord. And so God would say to you and me, first thing, have pity, find common ground, all counterintuitive, cancel the debt, because the debt's hurting you more than them. They'll never be able to repay it. Thirdly, lastly, let them go. Or as we say around here, take them off your hook and put them on God's hook. Uh, this is extra material, bonus, not gonna be on the screen. You're welcome. Uh, in the Bible, the last book that Paul ever wrote, a book called Second Timothy, he's in prison. He has already gotten a death sentence. He will be beheaded. He died on the Appian Way outside of Rome in a matter of weeks. And so he's writing his number one apprentice, Timothy. And in the last book he wrote, in the last chapter, almost in the last verse, he's reflecting on his life and he says this, listen with your ears. Uh, he says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. He's pulling up a ledger. But then he says, the Lord will repay him for what he's done. It's as if he's saying, I don't have time to waste on that debt. I'm gonna be dead soon. So the Lord will take care of him. See, you do the opposite of what this servant did. The servant left the king's presence, having been forgiven, and as a servant, someone comes to him, who's his servant. Am I making sense? Are you tracking with me? Gets on his knees, and the servant takes the posture of a king. Chokes him, pulls him down on his knees, and the man's begging for mercy. And the servant who takes the posture of the king and the authority of the king chokes him and sends him to prison. He has no right to do that. And what Jesus is doing, we're pulling out of the sermon, we're almost done. He's holding a mirror before us to see what you look like when you choose not to forgive. We are the servants acting like a king. And what's the remedy for that? What do you do when you're a servant acting like a king and the authority of the king and withholding what the king would do? What do we do? Are you ready? You worship the king who became a servant. You fixate on Jesus who looked down on all his creation from heaven and in horror said, oh my gosh, what are you stealing from me? My creation matters to me. And you're stealing from each other. You're stealing purity. You're stealing dignity. You're stealing worth. You're accruing a debt you'll never be able to repay. And so what did the king do? He became a servant. And he came to a cross and died. And the last thing, one of the last things, Jesus said on the cross, it was in Aramaic, and they just pulled the word right into your English Bibles, to telestai. It is finished. You know what it really means in Aramaic? Your debt is forgiven, has been paid in full. It's the last thing the God-man said so that we could walk this earth worshiping the king and with the power of that pulsating through us, be forgivers ourselves. I know that's difficult. I know it's impossible. And as you push back, what I want you to do is focus on the king and think of the greatest stories ever told, like Ruby Bridges. You know what Ruby does now? 
Among other things, she travels the country and speaks on college campuses in something called a Veritas Forum. They've had it at Stanford, they've had it at Berkeley, USC has had it, UCLA, they, they have it at all the great universities around. And I picked up one of her quotes from Columbia University. You know what she talks about in the Veritas Forum? Forgiveness. And everyone goes thinking they're going to hear about her six-year-old forgiveness story, but Ruby, at some point in the talk, goes, oh, no, no. She's a follower of Christ, and she says, no, God put a seed in me at six because he knew at 51 I would need forgiveness on a whole new level. And now I'll pick it up. She told the crowd at Columbia University, I have three sons, but I have four in my heart. My oldest son was murdered in 2005. Someone who looked just like him stood over him and shot him 11 times in New Orleans. What makes the tragedy even greater was that son was in New Orleans because he was investigating a drive-by shooting on one of her other sons. And that other son didn't get, wasn't killed. The audience was dead silent as Bridges explained the 2005 murder of her son, her best friend, and how it was the hardest thing she ever faced. But she says, it only made my faith stronger. I refuse to ask why me, she said. The more my faith is tested, the stronger it gets. Because at a young age, illiterate parents impressed upon Ruby, the most freeing way to live is to follow Jesus and to do what Jesus did, and that means forgive. That's why Ruby is one of the greatest stories ever told. That's why you can be a great story on the peninsula in 2018. Let's pray. God, I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't want to live in that kind of freedom. Yeah, yeah, embrace the pain and live in the pain, but to have access to you and the cross and give it to you, whether it's a six-year-old girl or a 51-year-old mom doing the unthinkable, in living free in forgiveness. God, we put ourselves before you, the king who became a servant, who canceled our debt, or if you don't know Christ, he's willing to cancel your debt. We wanna focus on you. And I thank you so much for the Grace Fest called a worship service where weekly we can come and Realize, oh, we haven't burned all of your grace. There's more. There's power. There's love. There's a reorientation of heaven and eternity in us. And we'll be tried this week, be tested around forgiveness. May our stories be different. Come back to that person you've been holding all sermon long. What's your prayer? Is it, God, change my heart? I, 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 I don't want to let go because I want them to hurt because they hurt me. But God, change my heart. I, w- I want what you want more than what I want. Or are you at the place also, maybe you've walked this road and you're like, I, I want to release them right now today, God. Forgive them from my heart. Do a work in me. God, we need you. Culture spinning out of control. We're called to a different way of living completely under an amazing king 
in the kingdom. Help us to be different. Help us to be free. Jesus, we love you. And our worship is to let you know you're worth it. It's so worth it. Commit ourselves to you. In your name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.